Well, thank you very much for having me. As was mentioned, my name is TJ. I am connected to you all because I get to preach regularly at Anacortes uh, almost every other week for since last October. And I've been greatly blessed by the opportunity to do that. And so I thank you all for your faithful uh, support of that work up in Anacortes. And uh, let's begin by reading our passage for the day, and then we will pray. So we are in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I'll give you a moment to turn there, uh, and then we will begin reading. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to speak to us in a way that we can understand. And so we pray that today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate the text before us, that we would know you better, that we would see the work that you've accomplished on our behalf more clearly, and in light of that, we would respond the way that you call us to in rejoicing. That in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves, we would recognize that our, our ultimate and deepest, truest circumstance is as sons and daughters of the King. And therefore, we can rejoice no matter what we face. You are good and worthy. We pray for your help this morning as this broken vessel preaches your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our precious Savior. Amen. Well, again, thank you very much for having me. I am, always tend to be relatively short on introduction of myself, at least. Uh, there is a potluck afterwards, and so you can ask me things about myself at that time, but I generally don't speak too much about myself at this point in the sermon. So, uh, again, thank you very much for having me. Uh, the sermon, I don't know if there's a title or anything that you've seen, but I have titled this sermon, Durable Joy. And the reason for that is that I think what Paul addresses primarily throughout the passage that we've discussed here or read here just now is this topic of joy. And what Paul seems to indicate to us is that the Christian should have a joy that is durable. Uh, we have a joy that is both forward-looking, as we'll see in the beginning portion of the passage, but then we also have joy that is present. There should be a joy that abounds in the Christian life 
presently and not only in light of our future guaranteed circumstances of of the new heavens and the new earth with our God, uh, present communion with him daily. Of course, we should rejoice knowing that that is the end result of what God has done for us here and now. But also, Paul seems to indicate that there should be a rejoicing that you and I uh, naturally exude because of our sufferings. And so that's what we're going to be discussing this morning, is this idea of joy that is durable. Well, let's begin at beginning verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read them again. Paul begins sort of by summarizing all the argument he's made up to this point in the book of Romans. So Paul says, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since, referring back to everything he's already said in the first four chapters, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. As I said, what Paul is doing here in these first two verses of the fifth chapter, of course, somewhat of an artificial uh, division there that we've placed on the text, this uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. You know, of course, Paul was not thinking chapters and verses when he wrote these. He was simply writing a letter to some Christians who he hoped to encourage. And, And what he's doing is right here, he's saying, look back at everything I've said so far. If all that's true, If everything I've argued up to this point in this letter is true, which Christians, we take it for granted that, yes, those things are indeed true, then all of what I'm about to say ought to be the natural result in your life. If you believe the arguments that Paul has made up to this point, then what he is about to say will be the natural fruit that will be born out in your existence because of those truths. So what are the truths that Paul is referring to here? Well, he says, uh, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So Paul is, is referring to this, this reality of our justification and the present peace that we have with God. And he does that by establishing two arguments so far up through the end of chapter 4. And those two arguments, argument one basically goes the first three chapters or so of the book of Romans. And that argument is, we all deserve damnation. We all are sinners who have rebelled against God. And because we've rebelled against God, what we deserve is his wrath. That is who and what we are. If you read Romans chapter three, it is unmistakable. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. This is, this is the testimony. This is sort of the, the Bible's Yelp review of humanity. We, we do not deserve God's uh, favor. Instead, we all, without exception, deserve God's wrath. That is argument one. And, and Paul would say, if you don't get that, if you, if you don't believe that, well, then none of the rest of the book is going to make sense to you. And, and really, I think that that tends to be, between biblically-minded Christians like us and the world, the, the number one division is our anthropology, our, the, what we believe about mankind. The, the most common belief in our society, you walk out the doors and you go talk to the average person and you ask them, is mankind basically good? The answer will be yes, of course. In fact, uh, Ligonier does a poll every couple years uh, called the Ligonier State of Theology Survey. Uh, if you're not familiar with Ligonier, it's R.C. Sproul's ministry. I would highly recommend. Uh, but 
they do a, a state of theology survey every other year, and they'll, they'll tell you the results according to the different demographics. You can just look at everybody's answers, or you can zero in on people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians. And when the evangelical Christians were asked, is mankind basically good, more than 50% of them said, yes, of course. And that is obviously in direct contradiction to what we read in the very opening chapters of the book of Romans. And Paul's, so Paul has to establish this argument because it is inherent in human nature. Of course, we're going to justify ourselves. We're going to say, well, yeah, I've done a few bad things here and there, but I'm basically good. You know, my motives are good. And the only reason I do those bad things occasionally is, well, because, you know, I'm, I'm not strong enough to, to always do what is right or, or occasionally I get tricked into doing what is bad. Well, Paul just wants to, to make clear argument number one, no, no, no. We desperately need help. That's argument one. And argument two that he makes essentially from chapter 3, verse 26 or 25 onward to the end of chapter 4 is, well, there is a way to be justified. And that that way is faith in Jesus Christ. It is not through circumcision. It is not through uh, good works. It is only through faith in Christ. But if you have that faith in Christ, if God blesses you with the gift of of faith, you are justified in the eyes of God. You are now a, a son or a daughter of the king, and therefore you have life eternal with Christ. And so that's where Paul has left off as we enter into chapter 5. And so that's why he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, essentially, now that we can all agree on those things, so, so I should say, if you don't agree with those things, the, the rest of the sermon won't make any sense. Because those two fundamental facts, which are really just the basics of Christianity, but those two fundamental facts are what the, the it's essentially going to be an emotional argument that Paul is going to make in these 11 verses. He's going to tell us, how should we respond emotionally to those truths, or what effect should those truths have on our emotions? Now, we are, I think, mostly here, reform people, and so we like to not talk about emotions. Uh, Paul had no problem addressing the topic of emotions, but what Paul didn't do is just simply say, like our world says, whatever emotion you have, that's good, it's valid, it's right, just live out your emotions. That was not Paul's instruction for us. Paul's instruction instead was, your emotions, or we would like to say with Jonathan Edwards, your affections, your, your inner life, uh, the way that you feel ought to be shaped by the fundamental truths that you believe. And when it's not being shaped in that way, then what we ought to do is recognize it and repent of that. And so, uh, as I said, if you don't get those truths, then the, the implication that Paul is going to draw out of them in the next 11 verses won't make any sense. Because if we don't recognize that, that I am now justified by faith in Christ and, and see that that is true for me, it can't have the effect on my affections or my emotions that it ought to have. And so Paul begins this instruction about our emotions in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
So what does Paul say? What is the, the first thing? When Paul, he, he addresses this beautiful gospel message that we were lost in our sin, but God has redeemed us through his son. What is the first application that Paul makes of it? He doesn't immediately go to sort of our ethical lives. He doesn't immediately go to your moral existence. Therefore, you need to do X, Y, and Z morally. Where Paul goes first, the first application he makes of these gospel truths is to your, your heart. It's to your emotions. It's the way that you feel. Paul wants to, to draw you in and, and help you to recognize what is, how should you respond emotionally in light of what God has done. And what God has done is to save you through his son. So Paul is saying, we rejoice. We rejoice. That is the, the life of the Christian. It is a life of rejoicing. And so in order to help us understand this, Paul, Paul sort of highlights two aspects of what God has done for us, even just in these first two verses. I think we could, we could differentiate those two aspects of what God has done through the two words theologically used and obviously throughout Scripture, the words mercy and grace. Now, many have, have made a, a distinction between these two words, and, and properly so. And I think what we see Paul do is he describes mercy in verse 1, and then God's grace in verse 2. In verse 1, he says, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's mercy. Now we are at peace with God. We are no longer at enmity with him because he has withdrawn his wrath from us, and he's placed it on his son. So God has been merciful. He's no longer giving us what we do deserve, which is his wrath, but he instead is going to give us something else. But verse 1 doesn't tell us quite yet what he's going to give us. That's what verse 2 comes in and tells us. And this is the grace of God. Verse 2 goes beyond mercy and, and tells us that God is going to lavish his favor on us. What does it say? Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, what, God, or what Paul is describing for us through, through these verses is God's mercy, God's wrath has been removed from us, but then also God has lavished his grace on us. We, we have access by faith into God's grace. So what is the difference between mercy and grace? Well, we could say simply God's mercy, some have said, is not giving us what we do deserve. What we do deserve is wrath. But grace is God giving us what we do not deserve, and that is his, his favor. The, the gift of his son and eternal life. And so it's conceivable, it's not what God did, but it's conceivable that God could have simply been merciful to us and simply set us in a neutral place and said, I'm not going to uh, exhaust all my wrath on you. But God could have done that, but God went beyond that and said, not only am I going to be merciful to you, I'm going to lavish grace upon you. I'm going to make you my sons and daughters, adopt you into my family, make you heirs, co-heirs with Christ that is what I'm going to do for you. And so Paul is, is trying to help us to see in these first two verses, here's what God has done for you. Everyone who has faith in Christ is saved and, and receives all of this. And so we get this, we get this impression, especially there towards the end of verse 2, that Christian joy is in, in a very real sense forward-looking. What, what does it say at the end of verse 2? We, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So there's this hopeful aspect about Christian joy that we see in the future, 
the new heavens and the new earth will be established. And of course, that, that should be a cause for joy presently, because we know how the story ends. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He doesn't suggest, well, you should just be hopeful because in the future one day things are going to get better. I know right now it's terrible, but in the future things will be okay. So rejoice. Paul doesn't leave it there. As we see in verses 3 to 5, Paul, Paul expands the reason, the undergirding realities for Christian hope. So let's see uh, what Paul has to say. He says, not only that, so not only all of that, that, that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God looking forward, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And there's something I think it's worth noting as we look all the way up through the end of verse 5, is the, the numerous uses of the word we. See, I think there's a temptation when we see a passage like this that, that discusses something that might feel somewhat out of reach for the average person. Rejoicing in sufferings, that does not sound like the way I generally respond to sufferings. Uh, that is not my normal inclination of what I do when suffering comes into my life. But notice Paul says over and over, we, we, he sounds like a Frenchman. He says we so many times in these verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What does Paul want us to recognize about this, this rejoicing that he's talking about? It's not a, a, a rejoicing that is reserved for the super-Christian. It's not a rejoicing that is reserved for someone who has achieved a certain amount of Gnostic knowledge that, that only they have attained to, and therefore, of course, we expect Paul, that guy's going to rejoice in his sufferings because Paul's a mega-Christian. No, Paul had the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. Paul had the same gospel that you and I have. And therefore, when Paul talks about this rejoicing in sufferings, he says we. He doesn't say I. He doesn't say only the ultimate mature Christians do this. He says we. And why is that the case? Well, because this, this rejoicing is based on the very fundamentals of Christianity. It's not based on implication upon implication upon implication of the deep doctrines of the faith that most people have never heard of. It's based on the simple facts of our justification by faith before God. And if that's true, and if we understand that, and if we believe that, well then, we will rejoice. But what we ought to also recognize is that that, that rejoicing, that gift that God gives us, comes by the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 5, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. See, the Holy Spirit is the active agent in delivering us into this reality. The, the rejoicing that Paul is discussing, he, he says this happens, why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. There is a, a very intimate connection between the believer and their God, which is that the Holy Spirit has poured God's love into our hearts. And therefore, because God's love has been poured into our hearts, we rejoice in our sufferings. 
Paul speaks of this dynamic a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. He's discussing the natural man and the spiritual man. And the dichotomy that he makes, the, the, the division that he makes, is this reality that there are essentially two ways of thinking. There are two kinds of people. There's the, there's the natural man who thinks naturally, who analyzes his world, his situation, his circumstances, his sufferings naturally and responds to them naturally. And then there's the spiritual man. And the spiritual man responds to these things spiritually because the love of God has been poured out into his heart. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16, Paul says this, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What is Romans 5 about? It is about the things that have been freely given to us by God. And what does Paul say here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? That, that by the Holy Spirit, we may freely understand the things freely given to us by God. And so Paul goes on, verse 13, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So there's that natural person. The things of the Spirit of God are not accepted by the natural person. When they're confronted with this, this reality that we ought to rejoice in our sufferings, the natural person says, that makes no sense. Why would, why would anyone rejoice in sufferings? Well, it's because uh, we, we rejoice because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. But to the natural person, none of those things are attractive. They think, I'll just take not suffering, please. That would be optimal. But the spiritual person, verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Verse 16, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. How would we characterize the mind of Christ? Did Christ avoid suffering? No, did he pray that God would take the cup away? Yes, he did. But did he ever try to avoid suffering? the suffering that God had placed before him. No. One of my favorite verses in Luke chapter 9 that talks about uh, Jesus is making his way. The whole second half of Luke is this journey of Christ to the cross. Uh, And it begins with this, this verse that says, Christ set his face to Jerusalem. That was how our Savior faced his sufferings. He knew. Of course, he, he prayed the night before, God, take this cup. He understood what, was, what he was facing. In fact, if you go look in the book of Mark over and over, Christ uh, tells his disciples, here's what I'm going to face. The, I'm going to be handed over, uh, and I'm going to be beaten, mocked, put to death, and then I will rise again on the third day. Christ knew full well what he was going to face. And Paul tells us that we have the mind of Christ if we are in Christ. And therefore, we ought to look to our sufferings as Christ did. And, and what does Hebrews tell us? That for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So Christ knew there's joy in this. And, and Christ didn't need to have character built, but we do. And so there's even an added benefit for us in suffering that, that Christ did not need, which was to be sanctified 
we get to be sanctified through our sufferings. And so we ought to look at it with a smirk on our face because the devil thinks he's going to use that suffering to destroy us. But we know that God is precisely going to use that suffering to build us, to strengthen us. And so we ought to, when we're in our right spiritual mind, we ought to smirk and think this is another way that I get to become more like my Savior. Paul models this for us, I think, most clearly in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. He's describing his own uh, walk. He's describing his conversion and his, his uh, desire to follow Christ. And, and he talks about his sufferings in Philippians 3, starting at verse 8. He says, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, all those things that he lost, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, when Paul looks at his sufferings, what is his, what is his thought? He says, I will go through these sufferings. Why? That by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead, that I may become like Christ. So in these first five verses, what Paul is, is I think, trying to help us to see is that our joy should not be circumstantial, at least not in the sense that we often think of, of circumstances, like, uh, you know, my bank account's getting a little low, therefore I have no joy. Or my, you know, my job isn't going so well, or my marriage is a little tough, and therefore my joy is gone. Paul, Paul founds our joy, he builds our joy on two truths that are unshakable. And therefore, our joy should be equally unshakable when we are in our right mind. So, Paul is going to go on, and he's going to help to bolster this reality by again highlighting who we were, what we were, and what God has done for us. So we read in verses 6 to 11, back in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, Paul says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Paul wants to remind us yet again, as he already did for the first four chapters of Romans, but he wants to tell us again what this gospel is. And he does it through three sort of repeated statements or repeated formulas. And the formula goes like this. While we were blank, Jesus did blank. Now, the thing that Jesus did every time the formula is repeated is the same. Jesus dies for us. That is what Jesus did. That's how Jesus responds to our fallenness. But the way that Paul describes mankind, and we see this in verses 6, 8, and 10, the way Paul describes mankind each time he, he uses this formula intensifies. 
He, he describes us in an increasingly bleak fashion each time he talks about us. So in the first time he sort of uses the formula in verse 6, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Then in verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then in verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So Paul uses three different adjectives to describe us. He begins with weak, verse 6. He says, while we were still weak. Now, weak, we might say there's not necessarily a moral dimension to weakness. You know, you can be weak and that's not necessarily a sin. And so what Paul doesn't want to do is leave it there. Because if, if Christ saved us simply from weakness, well then, you know, that's not so bad. It's not so bad to be weak. Of course, it's not optimal to be weak, but it's not so bad. So Paul moves on and he says, you weren't just weak. Verse 8, he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But there's still maybe a misunderstanding that, that could crop up if Paul only said that we were weak and that we were sinners. Because, well, we can make the excuse well, I only sin occasionally, and I only sin occasionally because I'm weak. I just need a little help. I need a hand up. You know, my motives are ultimately good, but, uh, you know, occasionally I mess up because I'm, I'm weak. I just need to be strengthened. If I hit the gym, then, uh, you know, I, I could probably stop sinning as much as I do. So Paul doesn't leave it there. So in verse 10, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So we are not simply weak, we are not simply occasional sinners, but we were God's enemies. We, we had become committed in our opposition to God. That is what Paul wants us to recognize, not because he wants us to get down. Uh, you know, that is the, the whole point of this sermon and the whole point of this passage is rejoice. But we only will rejoice properly if we understand what we've been saved from, what we were because that reveals to us, oh, I don't deserve the mercy or the grace that God is lavishing upon me. And therefore, my, my response to that will be all the more because I see what I genuinely deserved, which was God's wrath. And so in response to, to what we were, the fact that we were weak and sinners and rebels, enemies to God, what does God do? Well, it says in each of these verses, that Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so this ought to spark continual, never-ceasing joy in us. Because God would have been totally justified in simply, you know, sending another earth-destroying plague. He, he could have just said, oh, I'm going to start over and go make a new planet with some new people and start again there. We see God, God's freedom to make such a decision in the book of Genesis. He sends a flood that kills all of mankind except for a few. So we see that God is perfectly within his rights, and it is only his covenantal loving kindness that prevents him from doing that because he loves us. And so when we recognize that, we ought to rejoice greatly. Because God's solution was not destruction, but salvation, justification. And so God sends his son so that we might have life. And so I think this, this sort of brings us back to 
this, this original question of, of how do we rejoice in our sufferings? What, what sort of mindset would lead us to rejoicing in our sufferings? Well, I think first off, what we have to recognize is that in light of Christ's sacrifice, we can never doubt that God's will for us is good. Because, Christ, or because God sent his son into the world to die on our behalf, we have no right, really, to doubt whether God's will for you and for me is perfect. It is good. It is trustworthy. And therefore, when we're confronted with sufferings, how should we interpret them? Our immediate assumption, now I'm not saying that I've attained this, uh, but our immediate assumption ought to be, well, this is something sent in God's perfect providence for my good. This is not something to, to weep about. This is something to rejoice about. Why? Because through suffering, God produces endurance in us, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And so Paul reminds us of that and encourages us all the more to that in the final verse, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Because you and I have been reconciled to God, our joy ought to be unceasing. Now, there is grace and there is mercy for the fact that that simply isn't true of all of us all the time. I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you're not constantly rejoicing. But my my encouragement for you is that rather than, as the world does, sanctifying your emotions and simply saying, oh, you know, whatever you feel, that is exactly right and good and proper and and it's perfectly valid. We ought to question the way that we feel. We We ought to desire to be sanctified in our emotions, meaning that we want to respond to the things of this world uh, to the sufferings that we face, the way God would have us respond. And the way God would have us respond is through rejoicing. And, and I think the only way that that happens is by remembering what God has done on our behalf, which is that he sent his son to redeem lost, broken sinners and to give us eternal life. So I'm going to pray along those lines now. Father, you are kind. You are merciful. You are gracious. We thank you that you sent your son so that despite the fact that we were weak and we were sinners and we were enemies, we could be reconciled to you. And so God, we pray that you would make that reality uh, part and parcel of every single one of our thoughts, that we would interpret the whole world around us and everything that we do and everything that we experience through that lens, that the gospel would be the guiding thought in our minds so that when we suffer, we suffer joyfully because we know that it is in your good providence and for your perfect purposes. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our precious Savior. Amen.